Hello folks and welcome to the True Crime Enthusiast podcast, North Wales' premier one-man spare room-based true crime show that each week seeks out and recounts some of the more unfamiliar and obscure crimes, both solved and unsolved ones, from all corners of the UK and Ireland. I'm the host Paul, the creator and the true crime enthusiast of the show's title, where it's awesome as ever having you guys, who are the wonderful enthusiasts who keep the show spinning every week. Joining me as you do means the absolute world, and I do hope that the episode finds all of you good and well. So I'm back now into the swing of things after my break, and I'm about to shortly crack on with this, the second part of this series' multi-part episodes. As I said at the end of the last one, I decided when I was recording last week to make it more than a trilogy, I thought it was better to cover the cases in an episode each, plus, as I said last week, it's all about how best to tell the story so it's become a multi-part one now, because I feel that's the best way to do it. Before we do get to that, I want to say big thanks to the returning and new Patreon supporters of the show this week. That's Ashley, Sheila Morris, Christine Phillips, Amanda Wormel, Lisa Davis, Letty May, Emily L and Abby Caswell, who's kindly edited her pledge. Thank you so much all for your support. It's very kind and it's so very appreciated and I hope that you've all had chance to hear the bonus episodes of the show available to you as supporters and have a listen out for bonus episode number 21 which will be coming up towards the end of this month. As I mentioned last episode, also coming up later this month, I'll sit down and record the Ask Me Anything video for Patreon supporters. I've had a lot of great questions raised and I'm quite looking forward to doing it. Don't expect it to be some sort of Scorsese production or anything like, but it'll just be me in my spare room, in my own words, telling you guys all that you want to know about the show. If you're interested in seeing this or hearing any of the up to now 20 bonus episodes of the show that are available to date, with another one coming out each month, then you can do so with a choice of support tiers. It's dead easy to do, you just use the link that's in the episode show notes this and every week, or you can head over to the Patreon site and seek out the True Crime Enthusiast podcast there. Do so and you'll get to hear full-length bonus show episodes such as the Teddington Lock Towpath Killings, the Rotten Rose of Devon, or the Ambleside Red Scarf Murder, to name just a few of them with another one to be added soon. Speaking of bonus episodes, the True Crime Enthusiast podcast's birthday is coming on the 23rd of September, where the show will be two years old. That's crazy, isn't it? Where's the te- where on earth has the time gone? And as I did last year, I'm releasing one of these bonus Patreon episodes available to everybody as a big thank you for getting the show to its second birthday, because it's nothing without you guys to show. It will be the most voted for episode title, where if you head over to the show's social media, you can find a poll of these, and the most voted for title will be the bonus one shared for all of you guys to hear, because, as I said, you're ace, aren't you? So if you haven't heard them, then whichever title intrigues you the most, you can cast your vote for. I'll leave a poll running for a week or so, and then the clear favourite pair will go over to Twitter to battle, and you guys can decide. So that she'll be up and running as you hear this episode, if you head over to the True Crime Enthusiast Podcast Facebook group, you can find details there. If only Brexit was as easy and straightforward to sort out, eh? And so we continue with this series' multi-episode arc, The South Wales Slayer. Massive thanks to everyone who's gotten back to me concerning the first part. I gather the choice to split the cases down was well received, and I'm glad that I did. It flows much better for me, I think. 
It also meant that part 2 was very nearly written in full, which gave me time to research parts 3 and 4, so win-win situation there. If you haven't already listened to part 1 of The Recluses and the Ramblers, then I advise you stop this one, head over and start there. I'll do a short recap of course before we crack on here today, but it'll be much more beneficial if you listen to part 1 beforehand, and because really, who starts anything at part 2 or something? So a short recap then, in the previous episode we were in the South Wales area of Pembrokeshire, where on a rainy December night in 1985, fire service and police were called to a large blaze at a country house named Scoverston Manor, near the village of Stainton. The occupiers of Scoverston Manor, brother and sister Richard and Helen Thomas, were both found dead inside the fire-ravaged property, and although both were badly burned, Neither had been killed as a result of the fire. Instead, they'd both been brutally executed with a double-barrel shotgun. The resulting police investigation was massive. You name it, it was investigated. And after almost a year, the investigation was wound down when all avenues of inquiry available led to dead ends. All police could do was wait for fresh information to come in that may lead to a break in the case, or for the killer to strike again. Now the latter was unthinkable of course, and police thought that surely, in such an area, information to break the case wide open would come in sooner rather than later. But as the months turned into years, the double murder remained unsolved and inactive. And then, almost four years later, and less than seven miles away, there was another one. The episode this week contains descriptions and details of crimes and events that some listeners may find disturbing or upsetting, so as always, please use your discretion whilst listening, folks. With that in mind, please join the True Crime Enthusiast as we continue this week the second part of the series multi-episode arc, The South Wales Slayer, with part two of The Recluses and the Ramblers. So for the episode this week, we're still in the area of Pembrokeshire in South Wales. And as I mentioned last time, the county is dominated by the Pembrokeshire Coast National Park. It's an area that attracts many visitors each year, and is a very popular spot with hikers and ramblers due to the scenic 186 mile long Pembrokeshire Coastal Path that runs through it, and which is part of the much longer Wales Coastal Path, which heads northwards and actually finishes very near to where I'm from. It was a favoured, perhaps the favourite, destination of Oxfordshire couple Peter and Gwen de Dixon, who ever since the mid-1970s had holidayed in the same area of Pembrokeshire, the village of Little Haven, and had absolutely loved it. They'd begun heading to the area in 1974 when their two children were young, and had become so enchanted with it that they'd visited each year, even planning to up sticks and move from their home in Oxfordshire market town of Whitney to buy a house in the Little Haven area after Peter's retirement. 51-year-old ex-RAF flight lieutenant Peter was a marketing and sales manager for an Oxfordshire consumer electronics firm, whilst his wife, 52-year-old Gwenda, was employed as a secretary for their local branch of social services. Happily married for 27 years, the Dixons also had two grown children, Tim, who at the time was 27, and 18-year-old Julie, who was a student at university. The Dixons had arrived at their campsite, 
Holston Farm Caravan Park and Campsite at the Hasgard Cross area of Little Haven on the 19th of June 1989 for the start of their annual summer break where they parked up and pitched their sizeable dark green canvas tent. It was a site that the couple knew well and loved and had indeed been staying at for several years primarily because the Pembrokeshire coastal path ran right through the village of Little Haven. A particularly fit and active couple, Peter was a keen runner while Gwenda played badminton regularly, the Dixons were especially keen ramblers and so were fond of this stretch of the coastal path with its rich scenery, its many cliff-top and coastal walks and the examples of rare wildlife that were occasionally to be found there which Peter and Gwenda had come to know well over the times they'd spent there over the years. By no means unsociable, but tending to keep to themselves, the fit and active Dixon's ten-day break was filled with day-long rambles all over the coastal areas, where early in the evening after returning to the campsite, the Dixon's would soon be sound asleep, nicely tired from their days out. Other campers at the site got used to seeing the Dixon's tent quiet and deserted, but whilst Peter and Gwenda were at the tent, they'd always pass the time of day cheerfully and pleasantly with other campers. Early in the morning of Thursday the 29th of June, camper Richard Lines arose early and spoke to Peter Dixon, who Richard had pitched tent next to. As the two men chatted, Peter indicated that he and Gwenda were on the final day of their break and were planning to head back to their home in Whitney early that afternoon. As it had rained heavily over the previous night, Peter and Gwenda had decided that morning to take a final walk along the coastal path that leads towards the area of St Bride's in order to give their tent time to air and dry out before packing it away, hoping to catch sight of a pair of rare peregrine falcons that had been spotted nesting a bit further up the coast. And as Richard and Peter were talking, Gwenda emerged from the tent and bidding Richard goodbye, the Dixons set off. Richard watched as the pair headed across the campsite to a gate in the corner and walked out of sight over a mound known as Strawberry Hill, which leads to the Pembrokeshire Coastal Cliff Trail. He himself then packed up his own tent as he was leaving the same morning. Four days later, Peter and Gwenda's son Tim received a telephone call from his sister Julie. She'd just flown in from a holiday in Cyprus and had expected her parents to have collected her from Birmingham Airport that day, as had been pre-arranged, but her flight had arrived, and upon landing, there was no sign of them. Thinking that they'd been delayed somewhat, she'd tried telephoning their house in Whitney, but had received no reply, and fed up awaiting at the airport, she'd rung her brother, who set off to collect her, thinking too that his folks had simply been delayed. However, upon Tim and Julie's arrival back at their parents' house, there was still no sign of the couple. Peter's red Ford Sierra wasn't in the driveway or parked nearby and there was no sign at all that they'd even returned from their break. Concerned now as to something serious having happened, Tim and Julie rang around some family members and rang Peter and Gwenda's work but to no avail. They hadn't returned to work as expected or called in to extend their holiday and he then decided to ring the parents' usual campsite. It would be unusual for them to just abandon picking Julie up as they'd arranged to beforehand or to have contacted their respective employers to let them know they wouldn't be back on the pre-arranged day but perhaps they'd simply overlooked both of these proper caught up in serious holiday mode. However Tim just couldn't see this 
His parents were methodical and conscientious people, plus he joined them at the campsite for a short time a few days before, and they'd not mentioned anything to him then about possibly extending their break. Margaret Davis, the proprietor of Howlston Farm Park, took a call from Tim late that afternoon and confirmed that his parents had arranged to leave the campsite on the 29th of June, having not paid any further site fees or indicated that they wished to extend their stay. After ringing off, Margaret made her way across the sizeable site to check the pitch location that the Dixons had been allocated as to the information in the site guestbook, and sure enough, she found the Dixons' tent still there, still pitched. The Red Ford Sierra car was parked next to it, locked and undisturbed, and a look through the awning window of the tent showed that the Dixons' camping equipment and spare clothing were all still there, neat and untouched. She immediately contacted Tim back to report this, and it was then that he knew something was very, very wrong. As soon as he got off the telephone to Howlston Farm, a worried Tim had no other option but to contact police. Which is a part of the tale that we shall come to after a short word from this week's show sponsors, who I'm pleased to say are once again Stitch Fix. Now do you find the search for new styles of clothing and fashions a total nightmare? You know, you want to enjoy new stuff and styles, but you've got the countless looking through websites and shops, then trying stuff on, not sure if you like it, but buying it anyway. And then when you do try it on again at home, you think, what planet was I on? I hate it. I'm sure you know where I'm coming from. Then you've got the sheer overwhelming choice, sizes that look great on screen, but terrible on you when you get them. It's enough to put you off, isn't it? Well, there is a solution to this rut that you may find yourself in because of this, and that's this week's sponsor of the show, Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix solve your styling heartaches by offering you a very simple, very effective online personal styling service that does the job of ensuring that you don't have to spend time searching for the latest top brands or styles because it does all of the work and sorts all of that out for you. How's that here, you ask? Well, it's easy. All you need to do to begin is head over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime that's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. And once you're there and registered, you simply fill in a short style quiz. It's in depth, but it's very quick and it's very straightforward to do. You just visualize and click the styles that you like or what's not your thing. And the many different styles that are available means that everybody is catered for. By doing this, you're telling the Stitch Fix stylist what your preferred styles, your budgets and your sizes are, and then based on this knowledge, they then handpick and send you five different items of the best European clothing brands. After receiving your Stitch Fix, you try them all on and mix and match them with your current wardrobe, and if you find a look that you love, then that's great, you simply buy what you like. Anything that's not you, you simply pop it into the prepaid return bag and send it back no dramas, both returns and delivery are free of charge. All this for a simple styling charge of just £10 that comes out of the cost of anything you choose to keep. Now I had a trial of Stitch Fix when they kindly got in touch to sponsor the show, I have to say I am impressed. The entire service is very slick, from me filling out the online style quiz to my Stitch Fix parcel coming through the door, it was very prompt and I wasn't disappointed. I got a varied selection of great clothes and styles, and what I did not to keep, well I sent back no worries. 
But the added beauty of doing this is that when you send stuff back, you check out online after your delivery and you feed back to Stitch Fix about the items you have returned and why you have, so it helps your Stitch Fix stylists get your tastes even more nailed down to deliver you an even more satisfying box next time. So you got great personally chosen clothing styles with fluid personal friendly service and speedy delivery, and all for completing a very simple short style quiz. You can see what I mean for yourselves by supporting the show and heading over to www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime. That's www.stitchfix.co.uk forward slash crime to get started with your own Stitch Fix today. We shall now return to part two of the recluses and the ramblers. When it was quickly established that Peter and Gwendra had last been seen four days before they were reported missing, police were not optimistic about a positive outcome of the search for them. It sounds harsh that I know, but realistic, they aren't just dismissive like that down in South Wales. The part of the Pembrokeshire coastline where the couple had last been seen is a rugged and extremely rocky one, with some of the coastal paths in the area skirting sheer and sloping cliff faces that offer nothing except a 200 foot drop to the rocks of St Bride's Bay below. They knew from experience just how easy it was for ramblers to stumble and fall, with just one wrongly placed foot meaning an almost certain death, so fearing that there'd been some sort of accident here, a major incident was immediately declared and a mass search was organised and conducted of the coastal areas spreading outwardly from the Howlston Farm campsite. Pembrokeshire National Park wardens worked in tandem with police search specialists, dog handlers and civilian volunteers to search the clifftop lands and trails, whilst the Coast Guard and a helicopter search and rescue unit from the former RAF Brodie near Fishguard concentrated their own search areas at the foot of the cliffs. But by the afternoon of Wednesday the 5th of July, searchers had all but given up what were already slim hopes of finding either Peter or Gwenda Dixon alive. They'd been searching the clifftop areas thoroughly, as much as daylight would allow due to the treacherous areas of the coastal path, but to no avail, and they knew that with each passing hour, the hopes of finding the couple alive faded. The search had by that time reached an area of the coastal path known as Borough Head, a wooded area less than half a mile from Howlston Farm and one very close to a stretch of the coastal cliffs with a sheer drop, where shortly after 3.30pm, police dog handler Michael Callas noticed a swarm of flies on the unmistakable smell of decomposition coming from an area slightly below to the right of where he was searching, very close to the cliff face. Following what appeared to be a natural-made animal run down through the dense undergrowth, he cautiously made his way down through the heavily overgrown wooded area and was suddenly confronted with a horrifying sight. Peter and Gwenda Dixon had sadly been found, but this had certainly been no tragic accident. Their bodies were found in a small clearing about 20 feet down off the main coastal path perilously close to the cliff face and less than half a mile from the campsite they'd set off from for a short final walk six days before. The bodies could not have been spotted by any searchers or other walkers on the coastal path 
because the bodies of Peter and Gwenda had been completely and forcibly hidden from view with the use of broken off branches pushed into the ground and natural still growing foliage interweaved around them to create a thick, effective screen of the heavily bloodstained area. It had only been the process of natural decomposition accelerated by the warm weather that had led to them being discovered. Gwenda Dixon lay face down with her head towards the cliffside, her body covered with uprooted foliage and vegetation. She was naked from the waist down, apart from just her hiking socks, and her upper clothing had been interfered with, her bra still in place but having been pulled down below her breasts, whilst her jumper and blouse had been left on her but were rucked up. The remainder of her clothing and walking boots was found nearby, her walking trousers and underwear still together, but inside out as though they'd been hurriedly or forcibly removed for what was indicative of a likely sexual assault. Peter Dixon lay face down a few feet away at a 180 degree angle to his wife, his body having begun to partially slide over the cliff face. He was fully clothed in hiking boots, shorts and waterproof jacket, although his hands were secured tightly behind his back with a single length of grey three-ply polyethylene rope or sail cord. The screened-off clearing was deeply, very heavily bloodstained, and even the most cursory glances at the bodies of Peter and Gwenda told the observer that the couple had died an extremely violent death. A cordon was established, and as best as could be managed due to the treacherous spot where the bodies lay, the scene was examined and photographed. Home Office pathologist Professor Bernard Knight was summoned and attended the scene, where he carried out a brief initial examination of Gwenda's body in situ, but was unable to examine Peter's due to the precarious position that it lay in. His body was ultimately secured to a tree by mountain rescue to prevent it slipping and falling over the cliff face. By 9.30pm that evening, both bodies had been removed to Withybush Hospital in Haverford West for post-mortem examination, whilst the scene was thoroughly searched. Undergrowth for 50 yards either side of the murder scene was completely cleared, but no obvious evidence was found, apart from the couple's belongings that were scattered around the clearing where the bodies were found. A small rucksack that had contained binoculars, a camera case, a key ring and a collapsible walking stick. One set of heavily bloodstained waterproof trousers and jacket were also discarded nearby. Peter Dixon's wedding ring, plus his wallet containing cash and his bank and several credit cards, his driver's license and a BT charge card were missing and were nowhere to be found though, although a NatWest bank receipt that had been inside the wallet was found discarded nearby. Post-mortem examinations of the couple found what Professor Knight had suspected from only a cursory glance at them at the scene, that the cause of death in both cases was traumatic, close-range shotgun wounds. Gwenda Dixon had been shot twice, once in the back and once in the chest, and although it was not able to determine if she'd been raped, her body did show marks consistent with a sexual assault, including scratches and a mark on her inner thigh. She had also received a sharp blow to the left side of her head from a blunt instrument which was likely to have caused her unconsciousness. Peter Dixon, meanwhile, had been shot three times, like Gwenda in the back and to the right side of the chest, but he'd also been shot at close range in the head, causing a massive catastrophic wound that had destroyed the brain and the central part of Peter's face. 
Examination of the wounds had established that the shots had been delivered at close range from a double-barreled sawn-off shotgun, but chillingly, the wound to Gwenda's back and the wounds to Peter's back and head had been fired from the same barrel, where the chest wounds both had received had been fired from the other. The killer had reloaded the gun twice. One shotgun wound each would have been enough to incapacitate a person surely, but an orgy of violence such as this, well, that's just because you enjoy doing it, isn't it? There was no way to ascertain whether it was Peter or Gwendry who'd been killed first, but one of the couple had most likely been forced to watch the other one die. Now when I heard this week's tale many years ago now, those facts pure chilled me to the bone. There isn't another word for that except pure evil, is there? Either way you look at it, he had Gwenda Dixon wounded and forced to watch her husband blasted to death, knowing that she'd be next. Or Peter Dixon, wounded, tied up, and then forced to watch his wife shot, sexually assaulted, who knows in what order, before a final obliterating shot that killed him. Absolutely horrific, that, eh? So, for the second time in less than four years, and within seven miles as the crow flies, Detectives were looking at a brutal, double, sawn-off shotgun murder. Some of their first thoughts at the scene of the Dixon's murder must have taken them right back to that December night at Scoverston Manor almost four years before. It would have been unavoidable to, I mean, how many double shotgun murders can an area have? Although this was a completely different time and setting and it wasn't an interrupted burglary like at Scoverston Manor almost four years before, no empty shotgun cartridges had been found at the clifftop. The killer had collected and removed them before leaving. But the waddings from the cartridges were removed from the Dixons' bodies, and this revealed an important clue. Forensic firearm experts were of the opinion that the process of sawing down the barrels of the shotgun had caused damage to its muzzle, meaning that when a shot was fired, it would leave distinct scratches on the shotgun cartridge wadding as it was expelled with the shot. The type of wadding and shot that was recovered from the Dixon's bodies also suggested that the cartridges were Italian manufactured ones containing shot that was most likely number 5, but also possibly numbers 4 or 6. Meanwhile, forensic entomologist Dr. Zachariah Erzincleoglu, hope I've said that name right, had also examined samples of the larvae that heavily infested both Peter and Gwenda's bodies, and had managed to establish the Dixon's time of death due to the development of the said larva as being no more than a week before, and as the couple were last seen on the morning of the 29th, this would prove to be correct. Three witnesses also came forward to report that shortly after 11am on that morning, the 29th, they'd been on the beach at the bottom of the cliffs of Borough Head when they'd heard what were unmistakably gunshots coming from an area high above them on the coastal path. A burst of two, then shortly after these another burst of two, followed by a single final shot. They hadn't batted an eyelid about this really though, because in a rural agricultural area, the sound of a shotgun was not an uncommon one. What they'd actually heard was an execution. Peter and Gwenda Dixon had died horrifically where their bodies were found, less than two hours after setting off on their final walk. The massive resulting murder investigation, led by Detective Chief Superintendent Clive Jones, 
operated out of Haverford West Police Station, where it was the first in Dovid Paris police history to utilise the HOMES, which is the acronym for Home Office Large Major Inquiry System, computing system that's still used by police forces today. Standard murder inquiry procedures were put in place and actioned. All holidaymakers and people living in the Little Haven area were spoken to, and all known persons in the surrounding area with any record of violence were prioritised for questioning. Meanwhile, Peter and Gwenda's backgrounds were looked at to see if there was anything to suggest that this brutal murder could have stemmed from a personal motive, instead of what appeared to be a robbery gone wrong. It seemed to detectives to have to be, for the amount of violence that was used, it was hard to believe that this was random. But right away, making up for the six days lead that the killer had over police, police had a very strong line of inquiry to focus upon first. Peter Dixon's cash card. As his wallet and cards were missing from the murder scene and had not been found dumped anywhere nearby, they presumably had been taken by the killer. Inquiries with the NatWest Bank, who Peter Dixon had banked with, revealed that his cash card had been used at ATM cash points on five occasions in the two days following the murders, within a relatively small geographical area of no more than 30 miles surrounding the Little Haven area. Four of these transactions had been successful in obtaining varying cash amounts, whereas the first attempt had been voided. The first three of these transactions had taken place just 15 miles away from the murder scene in the town centre of Pembroke, the first two on the afternoon of June 29th itself, just over two hours after it was believed that the Dixons were killed. The first was a voided transaction at the NatWest Bank terminal in Main Street, before the second withdrawal a couple of moments later, at 1.36pm, used the correct PIN number and managed to withdraw £10 in cash. The same cash point was used again at 9 minutes past 4 that afternoon, and this time a withdrawal of £100 was made. The next day, it was off 30 miles northwest to the town of Carmarthen, where that afternoon at 2.59pm, Peter's card was used to withdraw another £100 at the NatWest Bank and it was then used again the following morning at 7.14am at the NatWest Bank terminal in Haverford West's High Street, again to withdraw £100. Now it was thought unlikely that the methodical Peter Dixon had had his PIN number written on a piece of paper inside his wallet, so the most likely scenario was that the Dixon's killer had forced Peter to divulge it before he and his wife were then cold-bloodedly executed. Appeals were now made in the areas that these cash transactions had been made from to try and ascertain if anybody of note had been seen hanging around the terminals at the crucial times. I don't know what else was expected at a cash point really, apart people hanging about, but there you go. But teach me for being Mr Cynical Bollocks there, because these mass police appeals and the appeals in the press and the media did pay off and a picture of a suspect began to emerge. Numerous witnesses in Pembroke came forward with reports of a dishevelled scruffy figure seen around the town centre that had caught their attention on the afternoon of the murder. He was described as being within the age range of between 30 to 45 years old, having brown scruffy collar length hair, sun-tanned and having a few days growth of beard, being stocky and about 5 feet 7 to 6 foot tall and dressed in hiking boots, t-shirt and knee-length khaki shorts, with several witnesses also offering the fact that when they'd sighted the man, 
he either had with him or was on an old-style man's straight-handled black bicycle. More than one witness also claimed that on first impressions, the man had appeared as though he'd been sleeping rough. Several artists' impressions of the wild man, as the figure came to be known, were made from these sightings and collated, but the impression that was released to the public that was to become quite remarkable much, much later down the line, but we shall of course get to that in time, stemmed from a sighting made by a motorist named Nicholas Elliott. Nicholas had been driving down Haverford West's High Street at about 7.15am on Saturday the 1st of July, when he'd noticed a man using the cash point there. His description was similar to that of others, stocky, khaki shorts, etc., complete to the black straight-handled bicycle, except that Nicholas described the man as also carrying a rucksack. It was decided out of the many impressions that had been made to use the one from Nicholas's sighting to go public with, opted for because it was a good sighting at a time when there were little other people about that may distract the witness's attention, and most importantly, it corresponded exactly with the time Peter Dixon's cash card was being used at that very same terminal. Nicholas had most likely seen the Dixon's killer. On the 10th of July 1989, the artist's impression of the man, which was drawn in profile because that's what Nicholas would of course have seen, was released to the media and was on the front pages of all newspapers. Now it's a very memorable picture this one, it'll be up on the show's Instagram page for you to have a nosy at, and it's one that ultimately brought a mass response from the public. This wild man quickly became the main line of inquiry for Detective Chief Superintendent Jones and his team, who had the full support of the Dixon's devastated family. The day after this artist's impression was released, at a press conference held concerning the sketch, the Dixon's children, Tim and Julie, were themselves in attendance seated next to Detective Chief Superintendent Jones, where they appealed to their parents' killer to surrender. Dignified, but with his voice trembling, Tim Dixon said, It's very sad that this should have happened in an area that they loved. My whole family is devastated. It's very difficult thinking ahead, and it's been hell imagining how we're going to pick up the threads of our lives. Please, if anyone has any information that might help, tell the police. Then, addressing the killer himself, Tim said, You cannot be happy with yourself. Why don't you give yourself up to the police? How can you live with yourself with what you've done to my parents? I always marvel whenever I see press conferences such as these from what are most of the time shattered families. You've got to exclude specimens such as the Phil Potts or Karen Matthews, of course, haven't you? But I always marvel at how dignified and brave some people can be under circumstances that the majority of us cannot even begin to imagine. Tim and Julie were no exceptions here in what must have been a waking nightmare. Detective Chief Superintendent Jones then went on to stress that police believed the man was armed and dangerous, and if sighted, should categorically not be approached by any member of the public. He appealed for holidaymakers who'd been in the area around the period of the Dixon's murder to scrutinise their holiday photographs. Perhaps this wild man was in the background of some of them, and if he was, then even if not given a clear identification of him, it may make for an even better artist's impression, or at least widen the area where police could search and focus appeals on. Already believing that the man may indeed have been living rough in the area, 
A mass search of all derelict properties and disused outbuildings in the Pembrokeshire area was made, but nothing was found. There were also no more withdrawals using Peter Dixon's cash card either, the killer having long since got spooked that he might be traced by using this further and had abandoned it in the wallet somewhere, not wanting to push his luck any further. And then he himself had managed to disappear, the scruffy cyclist who looked like Columbo addressed him in the dark, who'd been seen so prominently in the days preceding and immediately after the murders, had simply vanished. Police had learned that he'd been seen prominently before the murders also, following the response gained after the artist's impression was shown as part of the reconstruction of Peter and Gwenda's last known movements, which formed the lead item on the September 1989 edition of Crime Watch UK. I'm not saying anything. It had already been widespread in the media, as the publicity for the horrific double murder was very high profile back in 1989 but the response from seeing this impression on Crime Watch alone brought a new wave of hundreds of further calls in from right across the nation, all suggesting the names of persons who this artist's impression could be. At the time, the response to the appeal broke the record for the number of calls concerning a single appeal received by Crime Watch, and Dufford Powers Police were so swamped with calls that they had to get surplus telephone lines put into the already overloaded incident room. From these calls, several other sightings of what was thought to be the same man were now catalogued, all within a range of no more than a couple of miles perimeter from the murder scene, and all in the days preceding the murders. No less than 26 of these calls were between them in the vicinity of the three cash points that had been used by the killer, but he still wasn't found as a result. Or perhaps, he wasn't identified, is a better way to phrase it. As well as the hunt for this scruffy son of a gun then, who was believed to have been using Peter Dixon's cash card, there were also a number of other lines of inquiry that had come to the attention of police. Peter Dixon had a hobby of being a ham radio enthusiast, who'd chat to all sorts of strangers over the airwaves, and had a powerful broadcasting set installed in his car. Now, while I was researching and writing this, I wondered to myself why these people are known as radio hams, where the term comes from. So my mate Dave investigated and he found that it stems from back in 1908 and the station call of the first amateur wireless station known as the Harvard Radio Club, which was made by broadcasters Albert S. Hyman, Bob Almy and Poojie Murray, hence the acronym HAM based on their surnames. Boom. Are you having that fact of the day or what that, isn't it? Great, great start. Almost a dozen other hams were traced who'd converse with Peter Dixon over the airwaves in the days before the murders, and reports were received of an interrupted broadcast between Peter Dixon and another ham known as Tom, who he'd possibly arranged to meet. Now this tied in with a report also received from a farmer in the nearby village of Marlowe's, who came forward to offer that he'd spoken to a couple who was sure were the Dixons, the day before the murders as they'd stopped and asked him for permission to cross his land to head towards Dale Airfield, an abandoned wartime RAF base and popular tourist viewpoint, to meet a friend who was holidaying in the area. Was this friend the mysterious Tom? Despite an intensive appeal though, Tom never came forward and he was never found, 
It could never be ascertained whether this had been Peter Dixon whose broadcast had been interrupted, or that it was even for definite the Dixons that the farmer had spoken to, and this line of inquiry petered out. As had equally a search into the Dixons' backgrounds for someone with reason to hold a murderous grudge against them, Peter and Gwenda were found to be nothing except the height of respectability and absolutely devoted to each other, and indeed really did live up to the description championed by all who knew them as the perfect couple. There was nothing, not a single thing found with either of them that could possibly even suggest any reason to warrant someone wanting one or both of them dead. There were no secret affairs, no unpaid debts, and they weren't involved in anything shady. They were only occasional visitors to the Pembrokeshire area, so it was most unlikely that they'd been involved in an either long-standing or spontaneous row with someone from there that would end in such murderous consequences. What kind of row is it that leads to a death like that, eh? No as strange a place as a remote wooded clifftop path is for a random armed robbery, it looked more and more likely that this indeed had been the initial motive. And then another possibility was raised. Were the Dixons killed because they'd stumbled upon and interrupted some criminal activity? At the foot of the cliffs right by where the Dixons were killed, there was a small, very scarcely used jetty with a steep and overgrown path leading up to the clifftop from it. It was the only jetty of its kind on that section of the Pembrokeshire coast, and as the coast of Wales had been used for drug drops in the past, this was considered at first a serious possibility, that Peter and Gwenda had stumbled upon a drug drop and had been killed to ensure their silence. There had been reports of sightings of several divers in the area of St Bride's Bay operating out of a yellow fibreglass outboard engine boat at around the time of the murders which may have tied in with this, but a check with local subaqua enthusiasts found that this area of the bay was rarely used for pleasure dives as the conditions were unsuitable. But if a hefty drug payoff was waiting at the end, then I'm sure a person would bear the conditions, wouldn't they? The possibility was ultimately discounted, however, with a police spokesperson saying, We have considered the possibility of drug smugglers, but that particular piece of coast is hardly a suitable venue for landing drugs at any time, even in broad daylight. But later that year, a similar possibility raised its head. On September the 24th, two workmen who were erecting footpath signs on the coastal path near Newgale, about seven miles along north from the Dixon's murder scene, discovered a cache of switches and electrical wiring buried about two feet in the ground. Reporting their find to police, because who buries that lot there for any good reason? Anti-terrorism officers examining the cache determined that there were enough components buried there to potentially make at least ten improvised explosive devices. The kind is used to devastating effect by the IRA, who'd been responsible for a number of terrorist atrocities on the UK mainland up to that point, and I'm sure neither they nor their awful horrific exploits need any introduction whatsoever. It had long been believed that fishing boats had regularly been used by the IRA to make the journey across the Irish Sea to Wales under cover of darkness to smuggle in arms and explosives to the UK mainland which would then be collected and hidden in various weapons stashes by several of the IRA's active service units there. 
A search of the coastal path area discovered a recently dug over patch of earth only a short distance away, which when it was examined, revealed a large cache of weapons, ammunition and explosives. There were three AK-47 assault rifles, five automatic pistols, hundreds of rounds of ammunition, five hand grenades and a hundred pounds of Semtex plastic explosive. And a shotgun. A shotgun was found buried with the armoury. So if it hadn't been a drug drop that they'd interrupted, then had the Dixon stumbled across the IRA, who were using the tiny jetty as a landing point to bring in weapons and explosives, and had been executed to ensure their silence. This was a possibility that could not be ignored due to the proximity of the weapons stash to the murder scene and a covert operation, codenamed Operation Pebble, was launched. The weapon stash was neutralised but left in place and kept a strict secret. Armed covert surveillance was mounted around the stash, which was watched around the clock for several weeks, until late one night in late December 1989. Surveillance officers employing night vision scopes sighted two figures making their way towards the weapon stash carrying spades. Both men were also armed with pump-action shotguns. When the men reached the spot and started to dig, a warning shot was fired and armed surveillance officers quickly overpowered the pair, finding that they'd caught senior provisional IRA figures Anthony O'Dwyer and Damien McComb. Although it was a positive arrest and a great result for the anti-terrorism squad, it didn't advance the Dixon murder inquiry any, as it fast became apparent that there didn't seem to be any immediate connection with the murders. The shotguns that the men had on them when they were arrested had been test-fired and the cartridge waddings from these compared against the marks on the cartridge waddings found on the Dixon's bodies, and both were ruled out as being the murder weapon. Although a check of O'Dwyer's and McComb's movements revealed that they'd been in the Pembrokeshire area some months beforehand, it was only in the months following the murders that they could be placed here. Neither man looked anything like the artist's impression of the scruffy man using Peter Dixon's cash card, and although neither were likely to be the only active IRA men in the area, the killer's actions during the murders and afterwards, the cash withdrawals, the sexual interference, it didn't seem to be a terrorist-related double killing. At the Old Bailey in 1990, O'Dwyer and McComb faced trial for and were convicted of conspiring to cause acts of terrorism and received sentences of 30 years imprisonment each. From arrest to conviction, constantly keeping with the IRA code of being completely uncooperative with any investigations, both O'Dwyer and McComb had refused to answer any questions whatsoever that were put to them. David Powis detectives did visit them in Yorkshire's full Sutton prison following their convictions to question them about the Dixon's murders, but defiant to the last, the IRA figures had refused to even acknowledge their presence. It was the latest line of inquiry to have drawn a blank in the massive murder investigation. The inquiry was the biggest investigation in Pembrokeshire police history and had become one of the biggest for a single crime ever conducted in Britain. And after more than a year of tireless work, throughout all of the widespread appeals, the reported sightings and possible lines of inquiry, they had to face that they were no nearer to identifying the killer of Peter and Gwenda Dixon than when they'd started. 
Every single household within 10 miles of the murder scene had been visited and the occupants questioned. Police had worked through hundreds of sightings of the scruffy man in Pembroke and Haverford West, had searched for and eliminated scores of possible murder weapons, and had looked at every possible motive and line of investigation open to them, from attempting to find the source of the rope used to tie Peter Dixon's hands, to even having the Dixon's holiday photographs developed to see if any clues could be gleaned from these. But nothing. The scruffy wild man was nowhere to be found, and with it, the likely killer of Peter and Gwenda Dixon remained free. The remote location of the murders, plus the cash point locations where Peter's card was used, suggested this was a killer with local knowledge, meaning that he must have been spoken to already and not recognised. And although the crimes had never officially been linked, it must have haunted detectives that this man was possibly, most likely even, the same killer who'd executed Richard and Helen Thomas almost four years before, less than seven miles away. Who was still out there. Our next episode all, we shall find out if he was, and who he was, and more importantly, how he was caught. Because you've guessed it guys, this is the point where we shall leave the South Wales Slayer for another week. And we're only just past the halfway point of the tale. Once again, I'm so glad I've broken it up like this because there's still loads of it to tell and it's one of the most fascinating cases that I've ever covered for the show. It really is. It's one that I hope you guys have found interesting so far, enough that you can join me once again next week where the tale will continue. With that, I shall wrap this part up here then. But if you head over to the show's Instagram page, there'll be a variety of images relating to part two of the recluses and the ramblers for you to have a nosy at. The thread to the episode will be up in the True Crime Enthusiast podcast Facebook group as ever, but I'll refrain from discussing in it until the full saga is released, probably next week. In the meantime, also remember that you can vote for the birthday Patreon episode release for all in the Facebook group again for a few days. Or you can support the show on Patreon if you see any of the episode titles there and you're intrigued by them, or you have a burning question and want to add it to the Ask Me Anything feature that I shall be releasing for the show's Patreons as an extra this month. I'm off now to unwittingly write future episodes for a US-based podcast before I'm back with the next instalment of the South Wales Slayer next week. So I thank you all deeply for joining me here for the episode today. I've been, I still am, and still will be Paul, the true crime enthusiast, wishing you guys all good and safe times, and I'll catch you very soon. Take care all, and goodbye for now.